Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Gay, and I'll be reading today's edition of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. We'll start with the weather. Today, it'll be mostly sunny and humid, high temperature 85. Tonight, mostly clear and humid, low temperature 72. Tomorrow, it should be mostly sunny, becoming windier, and it'll still be humid, high 88, low 76. On Friday, you can expect sunshine, still be humid, it'll be breezy in the afternoon, high 89, low 74. On Saturday, repeat, humid, but there'll be a shower and a thunderstorm in the afternoon with highs 86, low 67. And on Sunday, it should be pleasant, less humid with some sun, high 79, low 62. In the numbers game, the drawing for Tuesday, July 25th, midday drawing numbers 0794. That's 0794. That's for Tuesday's midday drawing. For Tuesday's evening drawing, the numbers are 6834. That's 6834. That's the evening drawing for Tuesday, July 25th. We'll start with a story from Heather McCarran. We must stay vigilant. Cape Codders react to state draft ruling on nuclear wastewater release. Holtec International will not be allowed to discharge industrial wastewater from the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station into Cape Cod Bay if a draft decision announced Monday afternoon by the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection becomes final. The draft requires a 30-day public comment period before the State Environmental Protection Agency can set the seal on its decision. That decision would deny a permit modification the company sought with an eye towards discharging up to 1.1 million gallons of wastewater treated beforehand but still containing low-level radionuclides into the bay. The water comes from the fuel rod storage pool. The comment period is open through 5 p.m. August 20. The decision comes a little more than three months after Holtec filed for state and federal permits to authorize the wastewater discharge as part of the plant's decommissioning process. The company will continue with the EPA modification process and will look to evaluate all options related to the ultimate disposition of the water used in plant operations for the last 50 years, according to the statement. Responding by email to an inquiry from the Times, Holtec stated that the company is disappointed by the state's denial of our permit modification for discharge of treated water from Pilgrim Station well within safe limits. This process has already delayed the completion of the project for an additional four years, impacted the workforce on site, and further changes when site can be returned to an economic driver for the Plymouth community, the statement Regional environmental groups, such as the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, have argued that discharge of radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay, even if it is low level, would pose an unacceptable threat to the bay's environment, human health, the Cape's fishing and shellfishing industries, and the economies of Cape Cod Bay communities. Association Executive Director Andrew Gottlieb said Monday afternoon, the state's agency determination is an important day for Cape Cod, even though the decision still has to undergo a public comment period. It would have been nice to put a stake in the heart of the vampire today, Gottlieb said, but he understands the state agency must follow proper procedure to ensure Holtec does not have a claim against the department for not hearing them out. 
Diane Turco, who is part of environmental activist groups Cape Downwinders and Save Our Bay, said she and others who have been fighting against Holtec's proposal to release wastewater into Cape Cod Bay are very excited that the DEP has done their job and determined the discharge would be illegal according to state environmental law. At the same time, she stressed, we must stay vigilant to ensure the ruling is followed once it becomes a Pointing out ongoing protests related to the company in New York, New Mexico, and Michigan, she said this decision by Massachusetts could have far-reaching effects. If we can stop Holtec from dumping, she said, that's precedent-setting. Gottlieb said his organization argued that the company's proposal to release treated wastewater from the spent fuel pool, torus, dryer separator, and reactor cavity is not in keeping with the state's Ocean Sanctuaries Act. The state environmental agency cites the statute in its draft determination. The APCC's analysis provided the basis upon which this determination was made, Gottlieb said. As an organization, we're really pleased that the Healy administration listened to our legal analysis and found it worthy of their due consideration and using it as the basis of their Earlier this year, the organization submitted a detailed legal analysis to Governor Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, pointing out that the Ocean Sanctuaries Act explicitly prohibits the discharge of pollutants into a designated ocean sanctuary, except for a specific exemption that allows for the operation and maintenance of existing municipal, commercial, or industrial facilities, and discharges where such discharges or facilities have been approved and licensed by appropriate federal and state agencies. Gottlieb explained that Holtec's proposed discharge is not an existing discharge because it was not pre-existing when the Cape Cod Bay Ocean Sanctuary was created in 1971. The radioactive water discharge proposed by Holtec, he pointed out, is related to the Pilgrim facility's decommissioning process. The plant was commissioned in December of 1972 and decommissioned in May of 2019. The proposed discharge is new and cannot be considered ongoing operation and maintenance of an active power generator facility and therefore must be viewed as a new industrial discharge, Gottlieb said. Holtec arrogantly ignored a law that has been on the books for over 50 years and tried to convince everyone that Massachusetts was powerless to stop them. They were wrong and APCC made that clear and the DEP is proceeding to fulfill its obligation under the law. U.S. Representative William Keating, Democrat Massachusetts, whose district covers the Cape and Islands, said Monday that in the years since the plant was shuttered, Holtec has pointed at the exemption that allowed some wastewater discharge while the plant was still generating power as permission to continue doing so after the plant shut down. They would always point to that and say, we've done this before, he said, but that was an, under an exemption where they were an active supplier of energy. They don't supply energy anymore. The state has its own power to prohibit the release of wastewater, Keating said, and they're exercising it. This act here, I think, strongly will close the door on Holtec's plan, he said. The New England Regional Office of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency on Tuesday indicated the agency also received an application earlier this year from Holtec requesting to modify its existing National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permit issued in January of 2020 to authorize the discharge of treated spent fuel pool water and other wastewater associated with decommissioning activities into Cape Cod. The federal agency has not yet reached any determination regarding the application, and now we will need to determine the implications of the state's draft decision on its review of the federal permit modification request, according to the New England Region Public Affairs Office. EPA expects to be in communication with the stage on this subject in the days and weeks ahead, the agency said in an email. 
In a statement released Monday afternoon, Healy said, I've long expressed serious concerns about Holtec's proposal to discharge decommissioning wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. I'm glad to see this tentative decision from MassDEP, finding that issuing a permit to Holtec for this discharge would violate the Ocean Sanctuaries Act, she said. Our administration is committed to protecting our precious environmental resources, and we will continue to monitor Holtec's role in decommissioning the now-closed Pilgrim nuclear power station. There are other viable options for getting rid of the wastewater, Keating said, including trucking it away to the U.S. Ecology Idaho Waste Facility near Grandview, Idaho. He noted it's the same facility where wastewater from the decommissioned Vermont Yankee nuclear power station was sent. While it is a more expensive disposal option, Keating said, the company should consider the environment over profit. Why take risk environmentally when you don't have to, he said, calling the state's pending determination a very strong action. Comments may be submitted to MassDEP electronically at massdep.npdes at mass.gov. Written comments may be submitted to MassDEP Surface Water Discharge Permitting Program, 100 Cambridge Street, Suite 900, Boston, Mass, 02114. And now from Walker Armstrong, Dial-A-Ride faces an imbalance. Public transit service misses Outer Cape. The Dial-A-Ride, or DART, service offered by the Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority is advertised as an affordable, door-to-door, ride-by-appointment option for all residents and visitors across Cape Cod, all 15 towns. But newly analyzed transit authority data requested by the Times showed a sizable imbalance in which regions of the Cape are being served. There were 63,052 total dial-a-ride trips recorded between January and June of this year, according to the data. But only 2.5% of the total number of rides, or 1,574 rides, came from the Outer Cape. DART really isn't intended for extensively long trips, said Financial Officer for the Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority, Henry Swinarski. You can imagine the cost of operating the DART. We're running at a pretty large per hour cost. The idea of taking one individual from the Outer Cape to Hyannis or Sandwich, that would be an extremely expensive thing. Both Swinarski and Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority Deputy Administrator Kathleen Jensen said no requests for a dial-ride service coming from the Outer Cape were denied in the last six months, but acknowledged limitations in Outer Cape dial-ride services. The Outer Cape refers to the outermost towns such as Orleans, Eastam, Wellfleet, Truro, and Provincetown, where a car ride to the middle part of the Cape and to centralized medical offices in Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis could take 45 to 60 minutes. Community advocates, healthcare professionals, and public officials claim the Dial-A-Ride program is vital in order to provide an accessible form of public transportation for people who cannot otherwise utilize bus routes or other methods of transportation. Most Dial-A-Ride ride requests came from Hyannis, Harwich, and Mashpee, and the largest category was for rides to and from work, work-related purposes. But the data showed a majority, about 20% of the total number of rides, or 12,264, were for medical care, including dialysis, therapy, and senior care. Of the 12,264 rides classified as medical or dental appointment, only 145 came from the outer Suzanne Grout-Thomas, Director of Community Services for the Town of Wellfleet, said working with the Transit Authority is critical to address the Outer Cape services of the Dial-A-Ride program. In the data analyzed, Wellfleet had 105 Dial-A-Ride rides. I know that the CCRTA provides DART ride services for all 15 towns, Thomas said. 
However, because they are limited to providing service where the most requests are, demographics don't lend themselves to showing a justification for more service. The Transit Authority is one of 15 regional transit authorities within the state and has been providing public transportation services since 1976, according to the website. The Outer Cape is classified as a rural area by the Massachusetts Rural Policy Advisory Commission and has a regional population of around 17,410, which includes Provincetown, Truro, Wellfleet, East Ham, and Orleans, according to the 2018 U.S. Census data, compared to 205,830 for the rest of the Cape. In addition to the 105 ride requests in Wellfleet, Orleans had approximately 1,200 rides, Eastham had 175, and Provincetown had six. The data showed no rides for the town of Truro, the Cape's smallest town, with a population of about 2,000, according to the 2018 U.S. Census data. Swinarski said funding and budget restrictions are some primary limitations on outer Cape dial ride services. We need to live within the constraints of our budget, he said, but we have our efforts to take our budgetary dollars that are available to us to see where we can, in an efficient way, provide additional transportation services. Other alternatives to dial-a-ride for residents and visitors on the Outer Cape include flex bus routes and a Peter Pan motor coach line. The flex bus, also part of the Transit Authority, deviates or flexes off its route up to three-quarters of a mile to serve people who may have trouble getting to a designated bus Flex routes include a Harwich to Provincetown line and vice versa, according to the Transit Authority's Rider's Guide for this. These routes run seven days a week and begin service between 4 a.m. and 5.30 a.m., depending on the day. Flex routes end between 9.30 p.m. and 9.50 p.m., according to the guide. After riders get off at the Harwich stop, if they are taking the flex from Provincetown, they would then take the H-20 bus, another Transit Authority bus, into Hyannis. The Transit Authority also began partnering with Peter Pan Bus Service in 2019, providing bus rides from Provincetown to the Hyannis Transportation Center three times a day, 8.45 a.m., 1.35 p.m., and 6.45 p.m. The Transit Authority partnered with Peter Pan to make sure that people in the Outer Cape area are able to get a more express run to some other health care facilities and hospitals, Jensen said. Brianne Smith, Director of Care Management for Outer Cape Health Services, an organization that provides health care and social services to Cape residents and visitors, including arranging transportation to and from medical appointments, said it can be difficult for individuals suffering from medical conditions to use and get to public transportation services like bus routes. Often, somebody's not feeling their best, Smith said. Trying to get somebody on a bus for a very long period of time, you have to ask, can they ambulate well enough to be getting on and off and switching buses around? Ride-hailing services such as Uber and taxis are sometimes used when the dial-a-ride or other methods of transportation are unavailable, Smith said, which can cost a rider around $500 for a round trip. It would be great to continue the conversation about how dial-a-ride might be able to be more accessible or utilized out this way, Smith said, referring to the outer case. State Senator Susan Moran, Democrat Falmouth, said regional transit is the grease behind the wheel of several issues facing communities on the Cape and in the Commonwealth, including housing, climate change initiatives, and workforce concerns. Moran recently filed a bill that aims to increase regional transit accessibility in the state. She said the bill introduces an additional $100 million for regional transit funding and grants, bringing the total Senate budget to $194 million for regional transit authority funding, a figure that is double from last year. 
If you build it, they will come, Moran said of bolstering public transportation infrastructure. If we provide funding for more frequency and availability of rides, then the ridership will realize the availability of the service. Just as a reminder, this is a reading of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. And now a story from Doyle Rice. Atlantic current could collapse, causing dramatic weather changes. Now, this could be something to really worry about. The Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, AMOC, a large system of ocean currents that carry warm water from the tropics and the North Atlantic, could collapse by the middle of the century or possibly any time from 2025 onward because of human-caused climate change, a study published Tuesday suggests. Such a collapse could trigger rapid weather and climate changes in the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere. If it were to happen, it could bring about what on Cape Cod? Your thoughts on this prediction? Is this something that's worried you? Any specific impact such as an event could have on Cape Cod in particular? An ice age in Europe and a sea level rise in cities such as Boston and New York, as well as more potent storms and hurricanes along the East Coast. It could also lead to drastically reduced amounts of rain and snowfall across the central and western United States, the study's authors say, an area that encompasses many of the nation's important food-producing states. Earlier studies about the AMOC collapse drew comparisons to the scientifically inaccurate 2004 disaster movie, The Day After Tomorrow, which used such an ocean current shutdown as the premise of the We estimate a collapse of the AMOC to occur around mid-century under the current scenario of future emissions, the study authors write. The AMOC collapse is one of several dangerous climate tipping points, scientists say, are possible because of climate change, including melting ice sheets, deforestation of the Amazon, coral reef die-offs, and destruction of the boreal forest by heat, fire, and in. The Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation really is one of our planet's key circulation systems, said Nicholas Bors from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany, the author of an earlier study on the topic. The AMOC is a crucial conveyor belt for ocean water and air, which creates warm, salty water moves north from the tropics along the Gulf Stream off the U.S. east coast to the North Atlantic, where it cools, sinks, and heads south. The faster it moves, the more water is turned over from warm surface to cool. The cycle keeps northern Europe several degrees warmer than it would otherwise be and brings colder water to the coast of North America. Studies in 2018 and 2021 have found that a collapse of the AMOC is possible at some point in this century. Using new statistical tools and open temperature data from the past 150 years, researchers calculated that the AMOC will stop with 95% certainty between 2025 and 2095. Using new and improved statistical tools, we've made calculations that provide a more robust estimate of when a collapse is most likely to occur, something we had not been able to do before, said study co-author Suzanne Dilvitson, a professor at the University of Copenhagen. The researcher's prediction is based on observation of early warning signals ocean currents exhibit as they become unstable. The calculations contradict the message of the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, in which an abrupt change in the AMOC is considered unlikely of the century. Our result underscores the importance of reducing global greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible, said study co-author Peter Dudlitson from the University of Copenhagen. Study co-authors Peter and Suzanne Dudlitson explained to USA Today how the collapse of the AMOC could occur. 
Greenhouse gas emissions cause global warming, which speeds up the melting of Greenland ice. The melted fresh water entering the North Atlantic can then disrupt the AMOC, potentially causing major climate disruption. When the increased meltwater from Greenland enters the North Atlantic, it's fresh water, which is lighter than the salty seawater around it, Delvison said. This excess fresh water can disrupt the normal sinking of the salty water, weakening or even shutting down the AMOC. If the AMOC collapses, it can have far-reaching effects on weather patterns and ocean currents, leading to significant climate changes. Experts not involved in this study offer mixed reviews of its conclusions. Michael Mann of the University of Pennsylvania said, I'm not sure the authors bring much to the table other than a fancy statistical method. History is littered with flawed predictions based on fancy statistical methods. Sometimes they're too fancy for their own good. But Stefan Romstorff, a client scientist at Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany told USA Today that a single study provides limited evidence, but when multiple approaches lead to similar conclusions, this must be taken very seriously, especially when we're talking about a risk that we really want to rule out with 99.9% certainty. The scientific evidence now is that we can't even rule out crossing a tipping point already in the next decade or two. There is still large uncertainty where the tipping point of the AMOC is, but the new study adds to the evidence that it is much closer than we thought just a few years ago. The study was published Tuesday in the peer-reviewed British journal Nature Communications. And now the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund helps cancer patient with mortgage by Rashik Tabasa Mujib. A cancer patient needing help making a mortgage payment as she waited to receive her short-term disability payments. Recently recuperating from a second surgery, this resident of one of the islands was unable to work due to chemotherapy and radiation treatments. Despite having a supportive community's help with food and other expenses, she was still struggling. Now, with the help from the Needy Fund, she was able to pay the mortgage payment while she waited for her application for disability to be reviewed. The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Island residents so they can continue to go to work and or stay in their homes. People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for goods or services, a medical bill, for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. On July 2nd, the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund kicked off its summer fundraising appeal with the goal of raising $225,000 between now and August 20th. Donations, which are tax-deductible, may be made online at needyfund.org. Checks payable to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund should be mailed to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, P.O. Box 36, Hyannis, Mass., 02601. Those needing assistance may contact the Needy Fund at 508-778-5661 or 800-422-1446. Questions can be emailed to info at needyfund.org. The Needy Fund is also on Facebook and Twitter. And now a special to the Cape Cod Times, Too Big to Take Home, New Regulations for Striped Bass Fishing by George Costanos. Fishing, generally considered a relaxing sport, has become a controversial subject all along the northeastern coast this year. This is despite what may be one of the best seasons for striped bass fishing in recent years. Just last Wednesday, the Cape Cod Canal swarmed with striped bass and the catching was easy. 
I caught 60, Jim Belcher of Hanson said, adding that after years of fishing the canal, he'd never caught as many. The most I ever caught before was 42. Kevin Jordan from Manomet also had a good day. I caught a handful, he said. One was in the mid-40s. In- Steve Silva of Marshfield did not have any luck at the Cape Cod Canal on Thursday, but on Wednesday at an inlet in his hometown, he caught a 38-incher that he had to throw back. It was awesome, you know. You're out there, your arms ache, you're covered with sweat and sand, and one hit is all it takes, he said, showing of a picture of his catch from the night before. Although people were reeling in fish, in some cases by the dozens, most had to be released back into the water. And that's where the controversy lies. The Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission modified the regulations for catching striped bass in effect in Massachusetts as of May 26th. The new regulations allows fishermen to catch and keep striped bass within the slot limit of above 28 inches to under 31 inches. That's smaller than the previous slot limit of 35 inches. As in the past, anglers are allowed to keep one fish per day. This four-inch difference has created quite a stir in the fishing community. The mention of the new regulations in bait and tackle shops ignites enthusiasm, even heated debate. If you don't fish, you don't know that the community is so passionate about it, said Christian Cook, who works at Sportsport in Hyannis and is an avid recreational fisherman who also works on commercial commercial fishing boats. You can get 20 people in here and hear 20 different opinions on it, said The regulations were changed to try to preserve the species. In 2015, there was an unusually large spawning class of striped bass. These fish are now maturing, and the larger ones are the ones that produce eggs, fertilize those eggs, and keep the species going. At various times, there are larger or smaller spawning classes. In 2010, there was a relatively large class, but since 2015, the spawning classes for striped bass have been small. To put it all into perspective at one time, there were almost no striped bass in the northeast water. I would go fishing with my father in the 70s and 80s, and you wouldn't see a striped bass. We went after blues, said Cook. Commercial fisherman Vinny Zinzik from Mashpee remembered when it was illegal to catch striped bass. The fish that we were catching now are 33 inches. It took them eight years to reach that size. If you don't put the slot into effect, what was it all for, said Jordan. Most fishermen understand the logic and agree that the species should be protected, but that doesn't mean they like the new regulation. Zinzik pointed out that commercial fishermen are allowed to keep as many as 15 with a size limit of 35 inches, while a single recreational fisherman can't keep any larger than 31 inches and is allowed to keep only one. It just doesn't make sense, he said. Others want to know what a difference of four inches makes. Sussman also noted that a lot of people don't know about the new regulations, so the bigger fish are being caught anyway. People want to be able to catch the biggest fish possible, said Cook. Most people target stripers. It is a game fish, and they're fun to catch. Also, the striped bass is a good eating fish with a lot of meat on it, Cook said. There are people who think the regulations are not enough. They think there should be a total moratorium on catching striped bass. And there are people who think the regulations are too strict, and they want to keep their fish, said Noah Lamberti, who works at Riverview Bait and Tackle in South Yarmouth. Sussman questioned how effective the regulations would be. It's got to be enforced, he said. There are only 50 fish and game environmental police officers in all of Massachusetts. At least a few fishermen last week said they don't bother to print out their licenses and are rarely checked. Belcher and New Bedford's Dan Hofgarten said environmental protection officers were working all along the canal recently, checking all anglers for licenses. Cook thought it might be a better idea to have a tag system like deer hunting where fishermen can keep two sized over the slot a year, but they would have to pay for it as an additional fee on their fishing license. 
Sussman thought that perhaps what he called release mortality, wherein a fish is hooked and reeled in and then the hook is pulled out and is thrown back and dies, might be a bigger factor in decreased fish population. Sizek wondered if regulating the number of fish allowed to be caught according to size is actually the biggest factor in protecting fish populations. Citing a University of Maryland study conducted by Robert Stenkelis, who just happens to be Zizek's cousin, he felt that it really came down to a number of environmental factors, such as pollution, the oversaturation of freshwater being dumped in the ocean, and the behavior of people. It comes down to water quality, Zizek said. If the fish are living in a contaminated environment, they can't survive. It is seemingly a more complex issue than it might at first appear, so the debate rages on, and everyone has an opinion. Now from Graham Kruinghouse, officials, drowned man in Edgartown worked for former President Obama. Former President Barack Obama and his family are mourning the death of their personal chef who drowned while paddleboarding Sunday on Edgartown Great Pond on Martha's Vineyard. The body of Tafari Campbell, 45, of Dumfries, Virginia, was recovered Monday just before 10 a.m., police officials said. His body was found in eight feet of water about 100 feet from shore. The body was found by Massachusetts environmental police officers using side-scan sonar from a boat. Massachusetts state police officials said Monday that Campbell was not wearing a life jacket when he fell off the paddleboard. Campbell was visiting Martha's Vineyard, where the Obamas have a vacation home. The Obamas were not on the Campbell was the Obama family's personal chef, according to a statement by the former president and his wife, Michelle Obama. In the statement, according to the Associated Press, the Obamas called Campbell a beloved part of their family. Emergency responders on Sunday went to Turkeyland Cove on the pond near the Obama vacation home after receiving reports of a possible drowning. In a 911 call around 7.46 p.m., another paddleboarder reported that Campbell had not resurfaced, according to police. According to police call logs, the call came in from Wilson's Landing, a public launch point across the cove from the Obama residence. Wilson's Landing is also where Edgartown Police and Massachusetts State Police based their search from on Monday. The $12 million property purchased for Obama on Martha's Vineyard in 2019 is on Turkeyland Cove Road, a few hundred yards from Wilson's Landing. It was purchased by a trust listing, James F. Reynolds, a longtime friend of the Obamas, as trustee, according to the town assessor's data. Wilson's Landing was again open to the public by 11.53 a.m., Edgartown Police announced Monday. The Obamas said in a statement Monday evening that Campbell was a talented sous chef at the White House and that they came to know him as an extraordinarily kind person, according to the Associated Press. That's why, when we were getting ready to leave the White House, we asked Tafari to stay with us, and he generously agreed. He's been part of our lives ever since, and our hearts are broken that he's gone. The Obamas added that Campbell is survived by his wife and their twin sons. The death is being investigated by the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office and Edgartown Police. The District Attorney's Office, Edgartown Police, and the Dukes County Sheriff's Office all directed further questions to the Massachusetts State Police, who did not return multiple calls and emails regarding the incident. This is a reading of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. And now for the obituaries. Our first obituary, Norman William Proctor, Yarmouthport. Norman William Proctor of Yarmouthport passed away peacefully on July 21, 2023, one week shy of his 99th birthday with his wife Joan at his side. Norman was born and raised in Midland Park, New Jersey, graduating from Pompton Lakes High School. He went on to serve in the U.S. Navy during World War II as a radio operator. After his naval service, he received his degree from Uppsala College and later earned his MBA from Pace University. 
Norm and Joan were married for 66 years. They raised their family in New Jersey and later moved to Colorado and Illinois before retiring to their home in In retirement, he became a tax-enrolled agent. Norm loved golf and was a member of the Comiquid Golf Course. In addition to his wife, he's surprised by many family members, grandchildren, spouses, and dear friends, and they will all miss him. A committal service for immediate family will be held at the Massachusetts National Cemetery, Bourne, on Friday, July 28, 2023, at 10 a.m., In lieu of flowers, contributions may be made to Honduras Children's Project, 414 Blue Hills Road, Durham, Connecticut, 06422. That's a charity founded by Norm's grandsons. Richard Windsor Orne, Cross Junction, June 27, 1944 to April 6, 2023. Richard leaves his wife Patricia and other family members. He worked as President, Executive Director, National Sales and Marketing VP, and Manager National Accounts at a few Fortune 500 companies, Admissions Director of a major university, and owner of a manufacturing company. Finally, he also worked for World Class Consultancy. He served in the U.S. Air Force as a captain during the conflict in Southeast Asia. He was Chairman of the Cape Cod United Fund, a liaison officer for the Air Force Academy, Presidents of the Lions Club in Wellington and a volunteer for Meals on Wheels in Cashier, North Carolina. Richard went to the Mass Maritime Academy and Boston University, where he earned his BSBA in international economics. A memorial service will be held at Otis Air Force Base, Cape Cod, on August 7, 2023, at 11.30 a.m. At this time, I'd like to thank the veterans for their service. And that concludes our obituaries for today, Wednesday, July 26th, 2023. Our next story is from Wellfleet. Curly out, Carboni in as Wellfleet Select Board Chair by Denise Coffey. Following a number of contentious meetings and growing acrimony, Ryan Curley has been ousted as chairman of the Select Board. Member Barbara Carboni has stepped into the role. Members Michael DeVasso and Kathleen Bacon had been pushing for the new leadership during meetings earlier this month. The specifics of the sudden change are unclear, but what is clear is that the tempers have been simmering since the select board had a closed-door executive session on June 27th to hear complaints against a public official or employee. That executive session agenda also included a discussion about staffing and communication. Curley was in his second year as chairman of the select board. Members elected him to the post most recently in During the public comment portion of the July 11th meeting, Bacon said Curley ignored and dismissed the request to reorganize the board. She said an expeditious reorganization would be in the best interests of the town. 30 minutes later, DeVasso tried to introduce a motion to vote on a new chairperson. It set off a 10-minute row between him and Curley about the legality of the move, whether it violated the state's code of ethics, whether it was allowed by town charter, and whether it violated Curley's rights. Curley said town council needed to weigh in, and DeVasso countered that he had already checked with the town council, KP Law LLC, which specializes in municipal legal work. When Curley said the motion was illegal, DeVasto said, that is bull. Town administrator Richard Waldo suggested the item be included under topics for further discussion. After Curley denied DeVasto's motion, a roll call vote was taken to put the item on the next board meeting agenda. The motion passed with Curley the single no vote. Curley said the agenda item might not make the July 13th meeting because he wanted to check with town council. A 
Agenda items needed to be posted 48 hours before a public When Waldo told Curley several minutes after the discussion ended that he had town council on the line, Curley said he preferred to follow up with them at a later time. Several residents spoke during the public comment portion of both the July 11th and 13th meetings, saying they were concerned about what one man called this drama going on. At the July 13th meeting, Kurt Felix, a member of the Dredging Task Force and Board of Water Commission, spoke up in support of Waldo, saying he believes that there had been a crisis in leadership and overreach by Curley. Fire Chief Richard Pauley said Waldo has the support of senior staff members in town and criticized the behavior of Curley and DeVosto at the July 11th meeting, saying he had never seen anything like it. But DeVosto and Curley clashed again on July 13th. DeVosto claimed Curley removed an item from the agenda. Curley denied The board elected Carboni as chair on July 18th. Before the vote, Curley called it an honor to serve the town, saying the board had addressed several issues during a long period of turmoil. He said the workload had been immense and said the administration must do a better job of supporting the chair. Carboni thanked Curley for his leadership and suggested the board have a policy of rotating officer positions annually. Resident Roland Blair called for an explanation behind the calls for reorganization and the veil of secrecy surrounding it. Something went on, said Blair. This is my town. Minutes from the June 27th executive session have not been released and may not be released until August. The select board was scheduled to hold another closed session on July 25th without returning to a public meeting. Bacon said board members could not comment further on those minutes are released. From the Associated Press. $58 million in federal grants aimed to remove lead from school water. Boston. The Biden administration announced $58 million in grants to help schools and daycare centers remove lead from drinking water during an event in Boston on Monday. The grants will help local communities test for lead in drinking water, identify potential sources of the contamination, and take steps to address the problem, said Rahita Fox, the Environmental Protection Agency's Assistant Administrator for Water. Reducing lead in drinking water is a top priority for the Biden-Harris administration, Fox said. That includes providing technical assistance to the disadvantaged communities to protect children from lead in drinking water, she said. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren said the grant money will help create lasting, resilient water. Massachusetts students and families will rest easier knowing that the water in our schools is safe and free from dangerous toxins like lead, the Democrats said. Lead in water remains a vexing problem nationwide. Lead can cause brain damage, and the EPA says no amount is safe for children. The Biden administration has set a goal to remove all of the country's lead water pipes. The $15 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure law for lead pipework will significantly help, but it won't be enough to solve the problem. The EPA is also outlining new authority provided by the bipartisan infrastructure law to fund activities that remove sources of lead in drinking water. Also from the Associated Press, proposal would boost mental health care. Insurers would have to enable patient access. Washington. President Joe Biden's administration on Tuesday announced new rules meant to push insurance companies to increase their coverage of mental health treatments. The new regulations, which still need to go through a public comment period, would require insurers to study whether their customers have equal access to medical and mental health benefits and to take remedial action if necessary. The Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act requires that insurers provide the same level of coverage for both mental and physical health care, though the administration and advocates argue insurers' policies restrict patient access. 
The rules, if finalized, would force insurers to study patient outcomes to ensure the benefits are administered equally, taking into account their provider network and reimbursement rates, and whether prior authorization is required for care. Too many Americans still struggle to find and afford the care they need, the White House said in an emailed statement. The Democratic president's administration said it's aiming to address issues such as insurers enabling nutritional counseling for diabetes patients, but making it more difficult for those with eating disorders. Measuring outcomes, the White House said, will force insurers to make modifications to come into compliance with the law. And from Michael Casey of the Associated Press, the DOE investigates legacy admissions at Harvard. Boston, the U.S. Department of Education, has opened an investigation into Harvard University's policies on legacy admissions, which gives an edge to applicants with family ties to alumni. Top college's preferential treatment of children of alumni, who are often white, has been facing new scrutiny since the Supreme Court last month struck down the use of affirmative action as a tool to diversify college campuses. The department notified Lawyers for Civil Rights, a nonprofit based in Boston on Monday, that it was investigating the group's claim that alleges the university discriminates on the basis of race by using donor and legacy preferences in its undergraduate admissions process. An education department spokesperson confirmed its Office for Civil Rights has opened an investigation at Harvard and declined further comment. The complaint was filed July 3rd on behalf of black and Latino community groups in New England. The group argued that students with legacy ties are up to seven times more likely to be admitted to Harvard, can make up nearly a third of a class, and that about 70% are white. For the class of 2019, about 28% of the class were legacies with a parent or other relative who went to Harvard. Qualified and highly deserving applicants of color are harmed as a result, as admission slots are given instead to the overwhelmingly white applicants who benefit from Harvard's legacy and donor preferences, the group said in a statement. Even worse, this preferential treatment has nothing to do with an applicant's merit. Instead, it is an unfair and unearned benefit that is conferred solely based on the family that the applicant is born into. A spokesperson for Harvard on Tuesday said the university has been reviewing its admissions policies to ensure compliance with the law since the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action. As this work continues and moving forward, Harvard remains dedicated to opening doors to opportunity and to redoubling our efforts to encourage students from many different backgrounds to apply for admission, the spokespersons. Last week, Wesleyan University in Connecticut announced that it would end its policy of giving preferential treatment and admissions to those whose families have historical ties to the college. In recent years, schools including Amherst College in Massachusetts, Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania, and John Hopkins University in Maryland have also eliminated legacy admissions. Legacy policies have been called into question after last month's Supreme Court ruling banning affirmative action and any consideration of race in college admissions. The court's conservative majority effectively overturned cases reaching back 45 years, forcing institutions of higher education to seek new ways to achieve student diversity. A study led by Harvard and Brown researchers published Monday found that wealthy students were twice as likely to be admitted to elite schools compared to their lower or middle-class income counterparts who have similar standardized test scores. The study looked at family income and admissions data at the Ivy League and Stanford, MIT, Duke, and the University of Chicago, found that legacy admission policies were a contributing factor to the advantage high-income students have at these schools. Athletic recruitment and extracurricular credentials, which are stronger when students attend affluent private schools, were the other two factors. As a reminder, this is a reading of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. 
And now, from Zora Tierstein of New York, cases of tick-borne illnesses are on the rise worldwide. Some experts believe climate change is the cause. In 2022, doctors recorded the first confirmed case of tick-borne encephalitis virus acquired in the United Kingdom. It began with a bike ride. A 50-year-old man was mountain riding in the North Yorkshire Moors, a national park in England known for its vast expanses of woodland and purple heather. At some point on his ride, at least one black-legged tick burrowed into his skin. Five days later, the mountain biker developed symptoms commonly associated with a viral infection, fatigue, muscle pain, fever. At first, he seemed to be on the mend, but about a week later, he started to lose coordination. An MRI scan revealed he had developed encephalitis, or swelling of the brain. He had been infected with tick-borne encephalitis, or TBE, a potentially deadly disease that experts say is spreading into new regions due in large part to global warming. For the past 30 years, the UK has become roughly 1 degree Celsius warmer, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, on average compared to the historical norm. Studies have shown that several tick-borne illnesses are becoming more prevalent because of climate change. Public health officials are particularly concerned about TBE, which is deadlier than more well-known tick diseases such as Lyme, due to the way it quickly jumped from country to country. Gabor Foldarvi, an expert at the Center for Ecological Research in Hungary, said the effects of climate change on TBE are unmistakable. It's a really common problem which was absent 20 or 30 years ago, he, he added. Ticks can survive more than a couple of days in temperatures below zero, but they're able to preserve in very warm conditions as long as there's enough humidity in the environment. As Earth warms on average and winters become milder, ticks are becoming active earlier in the year. Climate change affects ticks at every stage of their life cycle, egg, six-legged larva, eight-legged nymph, and adult, by extending the length of time ticks actively feed on humans and animals. Even a fraction of a degree of global warming creates more opportunities for ticks to breed and spread disease. The number of overwintering ticks is increasing, and in spring there is a high activity of ticks, said Gerard Doppler, a doctor who works at the German Center for Infection Research. This may increase the contact between infected ticks and humans and cause more disease. Since the virus was first discovered in the 1930s, it has mainly been found in Europe and parts of Asia, including Siberia and the northern regions of China. The same type of tick carries the disease in these areas, but the virus subtype, of which there are several, varies by region. In places where the virus is endemic, tick bites are the leading cause of encephalitis, though the virus can also be acquired by consuming raw milk from a tick-infected cattle. TBE has not been found in the United States, though a few Americans have contracted the virus while traveling in Europe. According to the World Health Organization, there are between 10,000 and 12,000 cases of the disease in Europe and northern Asia each year. The total number of cases worldwide is likely an undercount as case counts are unreliable in countries where the population has low awareness of the disease and local health departments are not required to report cases to the government. government. But experts say there has been a clear uptick since the 1990s, especially in countries where the disease used to be uncommon. We see an increasing trend of human cases, Dobler said, citing rising cases in Austria, Germany, Estonia, Latvia, and other European countries. TBE is not always life-threatening. On average, about 10% of infections develop into a severe form of the illness, which often requires hospitalization. Once severe symptoms develop, however, there is no cure for the disease. 
The death rate among those who develop severe symptoms ranges from 1 to 35 percent, depending on the virus subtype, with the Far Eastern subtype being the deadliest. In Europe, for example, 16 deaths were recorded in 2020 out of roughly 3,700 confirmed cases. Up to half of survivors of severe TBE have lingering neurological problems such as sleeplessness and aggressiveness. Many infected people are asymptomatic or only develop mild symptoms, Dobler said, so the true caseload could be up to 10 times higher in some regions than reports estimate. While there are two TBE vaccines in circulation, vaccine uptake is low in regions where the virus is new. Neither vaccine covers all of the three most prevalent subtypes, and a 2020 study called for development of a new vaccine that offers higher protection against the virus. In Austria, for example, the TBE vaccine rate is near 85 percent, Dobler said, and yet the number of human cases continues to trend upward, a sign in his opinion of climate change's influence on the disease. In Central and Northern Europe, where for the past decade average annual temperatures have been roughly 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, documented cases of the virus have been rising in recent decades, evidence some experts say that rising global temperatures are conducive to more active t- The parasitic arachnids are also noted to be moving further north and higher in altitude as formerly inhospitable terrain warms to their preferred temperature range. Northern parts of Russia are a prime example of where TBE-infected ticks have moved north. Some previously tick-free mountains in Germany, Bavaria, and Austria are reporting a 20-fold increase in cases over the past 10 years. The virus's growing shadow across Europe, Asia, and now parts of the United Kingdom throws the dangers of tick-borne disease into sharp relief. The UK bicyclist, who was first domestically acquired case of the disease, survived his bout with TBE, but the episode serves as a warning to the region. Though the virus is still rare, it may not stay that way for long. From the Associated Press and Christina A. Cassidy, U.S. Cybersecurity Chief sees progress on election security. Charleston, South Carolina. Efforts to protect the nation's election systems have grown exponentially since the 2016 presidential election, but more is needed to defend the integrity and resiliency of the election process ahead of next year's vote, the head of the nation's cybersecurity agency said Tuesday. Jen Easterly, director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, announced plans to boost resources within the agency, hiring 10 additional election security specialists who will be across the country to interact directly with state and local officials. Easterly made the announcement at the summer conference of the National Association of State Election Directors in Charleston, South Carolina. Our capabilities and posture in this area is simply night and day when you compare it to 2016, Easterly told the officials gathered for her speech. Despite this progress, we know there is more we have to do and that we must remain vigilant in the face of new and evolving. CISA is charged with protecting critical infrastructure, including the nation's dams, banks, and nuclear power plants. U.S. voting systems were added after the 2016 election and Russia's multi-pronged effort to meddle. Since then, state and local election officials have been working to shore up cybersecurity defenses around U.S. voting systems with the help of millions of dollars allocated by Congress over the years. In its effort to secure elections, CISA works across government, partnering with federal, state, and local agencies on various initiatives and providing direct support through cybersecurity reviews, assessment of physical security protocols, remote testing to look for vulnerabilities, and other services. 
Meanwhile, the threats to elections keep increasing, with the newest concern centered on the emergence of generative artificial intelligence tools that can be used by those seeking to meddle in U.S. elections to create false and misleading content. That's on top of financially motivated criminal ransomware groups and the potential for sophisticated cyber attacks waged by countries hostile to the United States. Easterly, in an interview after her speech, said she was particularly concerned about the potential for bad actors to utilize generative AI, but expressed confidence that the public, with guidance from their state and local election officials, will be able to sort through manipulation attempts. She emphasized that the vote itself will be protected and secure. All of the reasons why people should trust the integrity and security of elections remains the same. The physical security safeguards, the cybersecurity safeguards, all of the defense in-depth mechanisms, the segmentation, the training that goes on, Easterly said. Nothing will change all these safeguards and measures that are put in place to ensure the integrity and resilience of elections. Easterly said the agency's mission hasn't changed, despite criticism from Republicans in Congress and a recent court order by a federal judge in Louisiana that limited federal agencies, including CISA, from contacting social media companies about content deep faults or deceptive, with a few exceptions. The case arose out of allegations that government officials used the possibility of regulatory action to coerce social media platforms to squelch what the administration considered misinformation on a variety of topics. An appeals court has since temporarily paused the Easterly said the agency has never and does not censor speech. When it comes to countering misinformation, Easterly said the agency will continue to weigh in when asked to by state and local election officials to explain security processes that are the subject of misinformation. She added that the agency is focused on making sure that state and local election officials have the information they need about potential foreign influence campaigns, that they can identify tactics used by foreign adversaries, and that the voices of state and local election officials are amplified. After Easterly's speech, state election officials from Pennsylvania and Ohio said they welcome the additional resources focused on election security and spoke about the importance of having good relationships with the federal government. The relationship needs to evolve and grow because our threat evolves and grows, said Mandy Grandjean, senior advisor and deputy assistant to Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, a Republican. And the general landscape of what we do is evolving and growing. And so it's great to hear what CISA is. And in sports, Cameron Hill of the Katuit Ketteleers is making noise in the CCBL by Bill Porter. Five years ago, Cameron Hill's father asked him a question. What is your game as a pitcher? I don't know, Hill replied. I'll get back to you on that. When Hill called his father Vince recently to deliver the answer at long last, his dad was delighted. I finally figured it out, Hill told him, and I could hear the joy in his voice that I still carried that question with me, Hill said during a recent interview at Lowell Park. The answer, in a word, velocity. As a young pitcher, pitcher, I was kind of lacking that, Hill said. Not anymore. In fact, it's hard to find anything lacking in the way the left-hander Hill has pitched for the Katuit Ketteleers this season. Going into last Saturday's Cape League All-Star Game at White House Field in Harwich, in which Hill retired the three batters he faced as the starter and was the winning pitcher for the West team in the 7-1 victory over the East, the 6-foot-6-inch, 210-pound rising junior at Georgia Tech leads the league with an ERA of 0.96 through 28 innings pitched. The player from Fayetteville, Georgia, was 3-0 in nine appearances, including five starts, had struck out 38, second in the league by one strikeout to teammate Cam Schulke, walked 11, and allowed 11 hits and three ones, all earned. 
Hill serves up a lethal of pitches that seldom land off target, including a wicked fastball. You have a left-hander who goes 93 to 95 miles per hour, and the ball really takes off, Katuit head coach Mike Roberts said. You have to beat people with your fastball at times, but his breaking ball and changeup really complement his fastball, so he doesn't have to rely on one pitch. He really has been able to throw all three pitches in the strike zone really well. So to me, part of his success has been balance in regards to the pitches that he throws. He's the best left-handed starting pitcher that I've had probably in the last seven or eight years. He's the real deal. Hill was asked early last week how it felt to be selected as a starter in the All-Star game. It felt good, he said. I went through some struggles at Georgia Tech, and to be able to come here, put on these pinstripes, represent these fans, and give them my best every night, there's nothing more that I could ask for right now. Through two seasons at Georgia Tech with 18 appearances and only five starts, he was 1-2 with a 7.33 ERA, 52 strikeouts, and 34 walks through 54 innings pitched. Cape League success could factor in not only boosting Hill's pitching prowess, but also shaping his Facing the best bats in the country kind of gives you a confidence boost, Hill said. Georgia Tech head coach Danny Hall is staying in touch with Hill this summer. He'll text me after my outings here, checking in with me, Hill said. Same with the whole coaching staff at GT. The Yellow Jackets are a buzz over Hill's performance. They're telling me, hey, keep going, and hopefully I can carry it over to Atlanta when I come back, Hill said. He said his Cape Leave experience has helped acclimate him to the role of starter, which is what he wants to be when he goes back to Georgia Tech. That's the goal, to be pitching on Friday nights in the ACC, Hill said, especially in my draft year. So that's going to be the goal come August when I go back to Confidence is one thing, overconfidence is another, and Hill is determined to guard against it. For example, that eye-popping Cape League ERA is something he chooses to mostly ignore. When I get a whiff of how well I really am doing, I tend to get a little bit complacent, he said. I'll be like, okay, I'm just fine right here. The next thing you know, it starts going downhill. So I try not to look at it too much so I can act like it's my first outing over here all over again. Act like I have something to prove, which I do. Every time I go out there, I have to carry myself that way. Hill has discovered that a rough road requiring perseverance can lead to improvement and success. He graduated from Whitewater High in Fayetteville in 2021, having never played varsity. He made the freshman team as an eighth grader, but the next year tried out for the JV team as we assigned to the freshman squad. He decided that wasn't for him. Instead, Hill got in touch with a former coach and joined a local travel team not connected with any school. We would go around the metro area. Sometimes we'd go to Alabama, South Carolina. We'd go to the southeast and play anybody who wanted to play, Hill said. That experience taught Hill a lot about himself as a pitcher and a person. Things don't work out the way you want them to sometimes. It's how you react that matters. He faced another kind of challenge when he grew 5 feet 9 inches to just over 6 feet tall between 8th grade and his freshman year. I've always been kind of tall and lanky, Hill said. When I started to get the height, I really didn't have control over my body. My dad said I was like a baby giraffe. He worked first on gaining control, then on building strength, and now it's translating well on the field, Hill, Hill said. Being tall has an upside for a pitcher. It definitely helps because my arms are so long when I let go of the ball, the hitter has less time to react than with a 6'1 or 6'2 guy. He throws a four-seam fastball slider and a split-finger changeup. The out pitch is whatever's working. He had a look pitching last summer for the Martha's Vineyard Sharks as he helped lead them to the New England Collegiate Basketball League title. Hill named the league's relief pitcher of the year with an ERA of 0.75, closed out the championship game win over the Vermont Mountain. 
When asked what he needs to improve upon, Hill doesn't talk about his pitching. He talks about his thinking. My biggest thing has always been not to get too high, not to get too low, Hill said. Now with the success I've had, it's kind of hard not to get too high. Kind of have to keep myself humble. But then I remember the times when I was struggling, and it brings me back down to earth a little. It's never as good as you think, and it's never as bad as you think. My dad always told me. Baseball aside, life is the beach, literally. He spends a lot of his downtime relaxing and watching the waves. It's kind of a metal reset for me, Hill said. Hill likes Katuit and the Ketteliers fans. They see him when he goes to the market or whenever, and they say hello and ask him when he's pitching next. He wants to win for them. He also wants to win for his dad, of course. He's always been there, Hill said, through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's been a lot of ugly, but there's been a lot of... And that concludes today's reading of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. Thank you for listening and have a great day.